Hello, beautiful food freedomers. I am so excited to welcome you to another episode of the podcast. Today we have Tara Moore joining us. This is a real big, delicious treat, having her on this podcast. I was so excited to get her on. I just wrapped up this episode with her. It's phenomenal, and I can tell you that it's one of my favorite episodes ever on the show. So here's what Tara does. Tara is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. She helps women play bigger and sharing their voices and bringing forward their ideas in work and in life. Tara is the creator of the Playing Big Leadership Program for Women, which now has more than 1,000 graduates from around the world and of the global Playing Big Facilitators training for coaches, therapists, leadership development professionals, and other practitioners supporting women in their personal and professional growth. Her book, Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead, named a Best Book of the Year by Apple's iBooks and now in paperback, shares her pioneering model for making the journey from playing small, being held back by fear and self-doubt, to playing big, taking bold action to pursue what you see as your callings. A Coaches Training Institute certified coach with an MBA from Stanford University and an undergraduate degree in English literature from Yale, Tara takes a unique approach that blends inner work and practical skills training. Her work has been featured on national media from the New York Times to Today Show to Harvard Business Review and has captivated women from all walks of life, including Maria Shriver, Julian Michaels, and Elizabeth Gilbert. Talk about a bio. This chick is amazing. I'm so stoked to have her on. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode and see how it affected you, but I need to just tell you that this book you have to get. You have to have this book in your hands. You have to have this book in your hands. You have to go through it. You got to highlight it all up, mark it all up, remember these things. Um, I'm just that on fire about this book. And that's all there really is to say. So that's why I was so excited to get her on, actually have an opportunity to talk to her. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, Another little announcement I just wanted to remind people because I haven't mentioned it in a while that there is a Facebook group for all the listeners of this show if you just type in MBM tribe on Facebook you will be able to find the group request to join and I will approve so that's the MBM like mind body musings uh, tribe and you will be able to join and join us for the conversation So here is the review of the week. This is from my bestie, Katie Dalebout. She says, Maddie is a star with five stars. This is one of the best podcasts on iTunes. Maddie's authentic voice shines and our guests are as awesome as she is. I love her solo episodes too and hearing her insights on things. Bottom line, she rocks and you should totally listen. Thank you, Katie. Love you. All right, let's go head on over to the show and... Let me know your thoughts on it. When you join the Facebook group, let's talk about how um, these concepts and insights have affected your perspective. Welcome to the Mind Body Musings podcast, the show for everyone and anyone that is ready to break free from the dogmatic chains of the health and fitness industry and create their own life free from restrictions. Now, introducing your host, Madeline Moon a former fitness model gone sane, and the author of the popular self-love book, The Perfection Myth. If you dig the show and you're looking for more insight on how to stop food and exercise from controlling your life, check out her website, maddiemoon.com, and grab your free guide. If you're ready to end dieting once and for all, it's time you learn how to pursue real health instead. Enjoy the show.
Hey, and welcome back everybody to the podcast. I was recently given a book, I was sent a book, and this book called Playing Big, uh, I received it and read the cover, read, you know, skimmed through the pages, it looked like something really up my alley, and once I started diving in, I found out that this book was exactly what I needed to read, and it's funny because last year, in about January, I read this life-changing book, which I've talked about a few times in the podcast called The Purpose Principles, I really loved it, um, but this January, it just so happens that I get another book that just changes my life, and it's one of those books that after I read through all of it, I went back and got out my laptop and started taking notes like a dork and filled up pages <laughs> of my Word document of notes of like bullet points and things to remember and things to go on sticky notes to go on my mirror and stuff I wanted to remember. So I am really excited to have the author of that book here on the podcast today, Tara Moore. Tara Moore. Tara Moore. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I love that story. I love that I'm your January book. You I, are. That's so great. That's so great. Yep. And I, I feel like that's going to hopefully be a thing that happens in my life every year as I just get this magical book fallen into my lap because I love that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a great way to start the year. So thank you for writing this book, first of all. Oh, thank you. And before we get into some of the, the ins and outs of the things that you teach, can we talk about your background and just how you became this inspirational leader for you know women all around the world? Well, I think we teach what we need to learn, and I know you know that too. And so everything that I teach now about how women can bring forward their voices, how can we stop playing small, how do we have the positive impact on the world that a part of us so so longs to have? I care about all of that because I struggle with it myself. And I have had my own struggles with self-doubt and playing small and um, got really curious about the why of that and also how to move through it. So that's certainly a piece of it. Uh, but I, I also grew up in a very unique house where spirituality and psychology were talked about every day and really made very practical for my childhood self. Uh, so my mom, you know, would always ask me, what do you think God thinks about that? Or if I said, so-and-so teased me on the playground, she'd say, what do you think's happening for them at home that would cause them to tease other kids? So that's literally how I was raised and analyzing my dreams over breakfast every morning with my mom, which I would feel was a beautiful way to be raised. And what that meant was that I have always been really interested in how our inner lives shape our lives and uh, how we can make change from the inside out. And so what I'm doing now is really a combination of that interest and a a real fire in me to see more women leading and helping to bring our world out of the many messes <laughs> that our world is in. Mm, that's such an incredible upbringing too. Like I don't hear many stories of people being raised like that as children. So that's really cool. Yeah, I feel very grateful for that aspect of my childhood. And I'm a mom now, and uh, I, I think in general we just do not uh, really see how much kids and teens can understand about psychology and personal growth and spirituality, and not only how much they can understand it, but how much they are hungry for it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is the time in their life where they yeah. probably need to learn it the most. Right, right, for sure. And they're feeling the feeling so intensely and they're dealing, getting to know what is this strange world that I'm a part of and how do I function within it and who am I within it. And those tools can really, really help. So yeah, I feel I feel so blessed to be given an introduction to that, you know. And then of course I found my own way, my own teachers, my own books. You know, I had many an afternoon at the spirituality bookstore in my town on my own, figuring out what resonated with me. But the openness to that and the prioritization of that was really there in my childhood from the beginning. So when you got a little bit older and you started to notice these voices of self-doubt creeping up in your life, can you give like an example of a moment where that happened and you were able to be very aware of it and pull out some nifty tool in your toolbox to, um, I don't want to say combat it, but disassociate yourself from that self-doubt voice. Yeah. Well, for me, a lot of my self-doubt has always come up around writing, which for me, you know, I, I have always loved to write. It's my happy place when I'm creating, but I think for all of us, the thing that we love to do is also it's a very tender place because it's close to our heart and we're vulnerable when we're doing it. And it's really it's a very tender part that is not really ready for all the rough and tumble that we sometimes get when we start then doing that thing in the world. So for me, going to going through school where, you know, I'd be asked to write stories and poems and papers and both academic and creative writing and then having that be evaluated by a teacher where I'd always feel like I'm putting my heart on the line and it might just be marked up or given a bad grade or I told I'm not as good a writer as so-and-so or I, my writing is to this or to that and the ups and downs that would happen, you know, with every different professor in college and as I was an English major – that was really rough on my writing self and my creative self. Now, years and years later, um, having done so much work to be able to write without being held back by self-doubt, things look really different. Um, and so to give you one example that I often share the story of now, um, when my book was coming out last year, Um, I was about six weeks away from the publication date. And so I was getting ready for a tour and all this launch stuff, which was very exciting. And I got an email from my editor at Penguin, my publisher. And the email was just a line long. And it said, great news. We've piqued the interest of the Sunday op-ed page of the New York Times. They'd like you to send an essay based on chapter six for their consideration. And I was like, I had no idea anyone was talking to the Sunday New York Times. I did not know this was being pitched. I did not think my book was going to be covered in the New York Times, let alone that I'd be writing something for the Sunday op-ed page, which is probably one of the most well-read parts of the paper. And the very first thing I thought when I read that email, after I just got over the shock of even seeing the words New York Times there, was, oh no, this is so annoying this is such a waste of time because I have all these things I need to be doing for the launch. And now I'm going to have to waste time writing an essay that we know is never going to be published because people who write for the New York times sound really grown up when they write. (laughs) And Tara, you know, you've never sounded like that. And they're really articulate, good writers and you're not, and you just don't have what it takes. 
So I thought those kinds of thoughts for about five days. And then I had the thought, wait a second, maybe that's not true. Maybe I'm hearing my inner critic. And another part of me said back, no, it is certainly true. You know, it's true. You know, it's true. And another part of me said, yeah, but I know enough about this now to know, you know, when our inner critic speaks up, it feels really true in the moment but it might not be true. And I started to use some of the tools that I practice and that I teach for, not for silencing the inner critic, because I don't believe we can silence our inner critics, but for being able to move forward anyway, so that I could write that whole essay with my inner critic saying, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, but it didn't stop me from writing it or submitting it. And guess what? <laughs> turned out that it was it was good enough to be published and it was good enough to do really well in terms of its popularity once it was published and that was just my irrational inner critic mm, yeah and I feel like I know a lot of those situations have happened in my own life where I just look for these excuses like I can't do this because I don't feel like taking the time blah 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 but they're really just excuses I'm trying to come up with so that I don't put myself out there for that rejection yeah, um, I thought of a question that I hope it makes sense because I, di I didn't really know how to phrase it right. But when I was reading your book and you were saying it, it's very, you know, it's not good to argue or combat self-doubt, which I very much agree with. Here's my, my thought. What if you're feeling self-doubt or insecurity about your body and you have these negative thoughts coming out? I can't wear this dress because my body doesn't look you know good in it I don't look I don't I don't look as stunning as the model wearing it or I can't go out and and go dancing because I'll look ridiculous or, or thoughts about your body body shaming um, beliefs so if you don't want to combat or argue the self-doubt how do you handle those thoughts so if you're thinking that you look puffy or you're thinking look x y and z do you not want to say no i don't look that way i look amazing or or do you want to do that does that question right. make sense i feel like absolutely okay, absolutely cool. yes yes so i certainly would be all for arguing with our inner critic if in my experience it ever worked but in my life, if I'm having a thought like, you know, you um, look horrible or you're not going to be able to pull that off or you don't know what you're talking about and I had him to say back to myself, you look great or you do know what you're talking about, honey, that does not silence the voice of self-doubt. It, it just, in fact, creates more of a sense of now I'm, I'm, there's an argument going on inside of me and there's a, there's a stress and a fluttering and a tension around that argument. And we can't really talk our inner critics out of what they're saying to us by affirmations or coming back with the opposite. The reason for that is really important to understand. Uh, the reason is that the root of the inner critic is what I call our safety instinct. So our safety instinct is the part of us that wants to stay physically and emotionally safe at all costs. And what feels emotionally safe to it is we're never going to risk possible rejection, as you said. We're never going to get criticized. We're not going to get too much praise either. We're never going to do anything that leads to too much 
in Brene Brown's words, emotional exposure or risk. This is the part of us that, you know, that part of you that just wants to hunker down on the couch with some comfort food and some reality TV and just know you're cozy, 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 cozy. It's that part, right? And that part doesn't want us to play big and going for our dreams. It doesn't really care whether we end up fulfilled or self-actualized or having a positive impact. It just wants to avoid any potential ouchy moments. Okay. So that part of us has to find a way to try and keep us in our comfort zones, try and keep us, you know, on, on that cozy reality TV <laughs> couch. And if it were to just raise its hand and say, you know, Maddie, uh, don't speak out about that. Don't venture out in that direction. I, I'm your safety instinct. And I think we could have some hurts along the way. Let's not do that. You would not fall for that. You would immediately say back, yeah, I hear you, but I think the hurts are kind of minor and I also want to do these things. And you you would uh, not pay attention to the argument that it was making. So our safety instinct has to come up with a much more cunning and intimidating and effective way to keep us in our comfort zones. And the way it does that is through that inner critic voice. So it'll say, instead of saying, don't do that, we might come in, we might run into some hurt along the way. It'll say, don't do that. You'd be better off doing that um, when, you, when you know more. Let's study the subject for another year. Or don't do that. You don't know what you're talking about. Or if that was a good point, someone else would have made it already. Those are much scarier possibilities for us to consider. So because of all that, because of that, what the inner critic is, that means that when your inner critic is saying, you look puffy, as you said, Maddie, or, uh, you know, I look horrible in this, there's something about the situation that has got the safety instinct freaked out. It could be, um, I might go out and meet someone I like and have to be dating and that feels uncomfortable. Or I might go to this party and not feel comfortable. I don't know who to, I'm going to talk to there. And so I'm, I, I don't want to go. Or um, I, if I was content with my body, I would have so much spaciousness in my life that I would have to face and think about some things that safety instinct feels might be a little uncomfortable to face and think about. So if we argue with the inner critic or just kind of say back, no, you look great, that just does nothing to address the underlying fears. And that's why it really doesn't work. Mm, you're making me kind of giggle over here because it's so true. Like, you know, that's that deep down satisfaction when plans get canceled. I have that. <laughs> I have that. Like when you just said like the cozy on the couch, I'm like, man, I do that all the time when people are like, sorry, girl, got to cancel plans. And I'm like, oh, yes, get to be on the couch, <laughs> snuggle with my my reality TV. And I do that all the time. And I know half the time it's because that just really sounds awesome to relax. Right. But sometimes it is because I'm scared of not making an impact in someone's life or maybe it's a podcast call I'm nervous to talk to someone and I'm like oh yeah thank goodness now I can you know read a book instead and like you know save that call for another time when I'm more prepared so right. I know that feeling so well and it's it's cool to be able to match it up with what's actually going on because I've never thought about that yes right and that's the literal couch and then there's also the kind of 
metaphoric couches of just, okay, so what's the cozy couch in your job? You know, what's the place that you already are mm-hmm. that is feels really familiar, a little bit numbed out, you know nothing too scary is going to happen? And what's the playing big place in your job that probably feels a lot less comfortable, but where also some real potential for more fulfillment and self-expression lies for you? Right. And I can to a T like tell you like that, that comfy couch would be blogging because it's just I've been doing that since I was young. Mm -hmm. And I will not like blogging necessarily, but writing and like I love to write and I've always been, you know, like really confident in what I have to write because I make it very clear and concise. And even when people do critique it, it hurts, but I still feel pretty good going into it. And when I'm done, I feel good. But speaking, on the other hand, which is Of course, the one thing I want to do the most terrifies me the most. And every year I'm like, this is the year of speaking. This is the year of getting on that stage, finally committing to doing a talk, reaching out to the TED Talks. Like, I'm going to make this happen. going to scream my message loud and clear. And of course, every year, whenever those opportunities arise, I'm like, uh, I'm not ready. I'd rather just write a blog post and stick to what I know. (laughs) (laughs) I love that line. I'm not ready. I'd rather write a blog post. It could be your auto responder in your email. Yeah. You know, and I'm so glad you mentioned I'm not ready because this is a really tricky inner critic line because it sounds reasonable. And especially for those of us who are doing work on ourselves and maybe we're, you know, we're working on being more in tune with our intuition and kinder to ourselves that I'm not ready sounds like, well, I listened to myself. I checked in with myself. Um, I, you know, I just assessed the situation and I'm not ready yet. The problem is that all of us and particularly women and brilliant women we have no idea what we're ready for. We have no idea what we're ready for. And a lot of times what's happening in that moment is we're feeling scared of the unknown, of the visibility that's going to come with something, of the particular um, range of reactions that might come to what we're doing. And so we feel the fear. We feel the discomfort. Things start to feel very fluttery and out of control a little bit. And then we mistake that for, that must mean I'm not ready. But I can tell you, you know, for me, a quintessential example of this was when I, when my writing um, and my blogging started to get more attention and I had written some pieces for Huffington Post that had gone very viral and a publicist approached me and she said, you know, your writing is changing my life. It's changing my mother's life. It's changing my cousin's life. Like, but why don't more people know about you? We have to get it out there. And I'm thinking, you know, this can't be a legitimate publicist because why would she be cold calling people, let alone me? And she must have, you know, maybe this is someone who just retired and decided being a publicist is going to be her <laughs> retirement hobby or something. But then I Googled her and it's like, oh, no, okay, she's like a publicist for, you know, some TV shows and so on. Anyway, so I said, okay, let's do a little trial. I would, in fact, like to be in the media more. But I had I had only been um, – I had been blogging for a couple years at that point, but I still felt very new in terms of like I'm figuring out what my message is and I'm evolving my material so much. And she said, it's okay. You know, we're going to, this is how the process goes. We're going to start with local media. You're going to get some good local media. Then from there, we go to the larger local markets. 
And then from there, when we've done the larger regional and local markets, then we'll start to pitch some national things. Said, okay. Then about a month later, I was wandering around in a vintage clothing store and happened to look at my email on my phone. And her email said, hey, Tara, you're booked on the Today Show. And I sat down. Thankfully, there were some chairs where people could wait by the dressing room. And I, my jaw dropped open. And I was so sure I wasn't ready for that. Like even she had told me I was going to get to practice and da 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 and media training and it, nothing. I, literally, it was the first television thing I ever did. And thankfully, again, because I had coached so many women and just been so inspired by them and seen their capability and seen them saying, I'm not ready for things that anyone who knew them and loved them could see they were more than ready for. I had already adopted in my life, I don't ask myself that question. I do not ask myself, are you ready? I let life give me some information about that. And so I had to accept, you know, well, who knows more whether I'm ready to go on the Today Show, me and my inner critic or the producers of the Today Show? Like, maybe we can trust them that based on whatever they've seen, they feel this is okay. So I always recommend that to women. Don't ask what you're ready for. Ask what, you're, what you feel called toward. Ask, toward, ask what your long-term vision for your life and work is and does this thing help you move in that direction? If it's aligned with that, your assessment of what you're ready for um, is probably going to be off base and really is not something you need to take up. That's fantastic. I love that so much. That's going on my mirror on a sticky <laughs> <laughs> with everything else that you write about. So... Now that we understand the inner critic, what is the opposite end, the inner mentor that you write about? Um, how do you find this mysterious creature? Yes, yes. Well, I love sharing about this because I don't know anything else like this like this tool. Um, this It's really a vehicle. It's so easy to use. And it is a way that all of us can connect with a part of ourselves that is wise and calm and loving and so insightful in a way that our regular everyday selves are not. And I have watched, I mean, I have been, I feel so privileged that I've gotten to witness hundreds of women being in coaching conversations with them um, where I see what they were thinking about a situation before, and then I see the new answers and the new understanding they get when they consult with this inner mentor voice. And the change, I mean, every time it brings both me and them to tears, it's, it's so amazing. So I, and I know, you know, if women and men were in touch with their inner mentors, more of us were just going to create a, a, a saner and healthier world from that. So that's, that's the, the context. And what the inner mentor is, is it's a vision of yourself uh, that you get to through a guided meditation and visualization exercise. It takes about 20 or 30 minutes to do. And in the visualization, you go and meet your, your older, wiser self. So yourself about 20 or 30 years into the future, far enough out that, you know, this is not dictated by how you feel your current plans are going, but, but a distant vision. 
And what's so fascinating is that this this figure that people meet isn't just their older selves. It's something much more magical than that. It's sort of your older self. It's sort of your most authentic self. It's sort of your inner wise woman. Um, it's a combination of all of those. And you can start to relate to that vision of yourself just like you would relate to the most amazing mentor in the world where you can ask that that sense of yourself, that vision of yourself, well, what would she do in this situation? And how would she handle this difficult conversation? And how does she feel about her body when she gets dressed? And what, it, what does she like to wear? And what does she do for exercise? And how does she like to take care of herself? And what does she do when she has a Sunday afternoon free? Any small or big aspect of your life, you can start to live more into her. And for me personally, this was, I, I was fortunate enough to experience this, a form of this tool in my coaching training, which I did at the Coaches Training Institute, CTI. Um, they called it Future Self. And at the time when I was doing that training, I was you know, not being creative in my work or my life. I was in a very um, left brain analytical environment. I had completely turned my back on my most central passions and my dreams for my life. And I was trying to find my way back to myself. And my inner mentor was the biggest help to me in that. And every day, you know, I, anytime I was faced with a choice, I would think of her and say, well, you know, which one of these fork A in the road or fork B, which one is going to get me closer to her? And I would choose that one. So I did this visualization and it was one of like the best, uh, I don't know, experiences like meditation, like experiences I've ever done. And it's mm. funny because when I first read what you wrote, you were you wrote something like, if you fall asleep, you know, sit up next time. And the first <laughs> time I did it, I fell asleep. I was like, who falls asleep during something like this? I totally fell asleep because your voice was so calming and I was laying down. I had a blanket on me. I just was like set up for it. But I woke up and I did it again. <laughs> great. Like, I did it again. And it was so great. And it was so... Mm eye-opening and I loved what I saw and I loved mm -hmm. the person I saw and in the the house I was living in I'll never forget it and good news I still live in Colorado which is great because <laughs> I love it here uh -huh. um, but another thing you wrote that I do want to point out that I also really appreciated is that I might butcher this but you said that this isn't like a destination you'll never be you know, there, but you use that as a, a North star. You use that yeah. visualization. I think that's so beautiful. And that's so great because of course, with me being like, you know, all or nothing, you know, perfectionist, blah, 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 all that stuff I've been working on for so long. I'm like, I have to be this person. I have to get there. But reading that she is your North star, she's just a guiding tool. So to help you make decisions, that was really great. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad you included that. So I'm like, remembering, you know, I, I am everything that I need to be right now, but she is a great um, North Star to just guide my decisions and especially with the other details that kind of give you more confidence, like dressing a particular way or having more sunlight in your office, um, those types of things, which I feel make a big difference in your life. You can get those tiny details from doing a visual visualization like this. Yeah, and that's such a great point, Maddie, about sometimes if we have a visualization, it can become a setup for feeling 
incomplete or, you know, not there yet. Like if you create your vision board and then it becomes this thing of like, but I didn't have that part yet. And I haven't been on my sunset beach vacation. Like I see in my vision board and something to achieve, which can kind of get us in the same cycle of not enough and extra depending on external things. So yes, I, that's one of the things I love about the inner mentor. And also not everything that shows up in the visualization is literal. Some things are symbols and like almost like you do dream interpretation and interpret what was the symbolism of that in a dream. Um, For example, you know, if someone sees that their, their inner mentor is living in a house that's all glass, that doesn't mean necessarily in 20 years you're going to be living in a house that's all glass. But by sensing, well, what did that house feel like in the visualization? Oh, it felt so spacious. It felt so infused with energy. It felt so uncluttered and like her life had been simplified. Then we get a sense of, okay, what was the symbol that that house was? And what's the message about how she's living that you can incorporate no matter what your house is today, right? That gives you an energy to work with. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Did it take you some time to start turning to to, turning to her, you know, when you had these decisions to make throughout the day? Was it kind of easy or a little bit difficult to keep asking? It was pretty compelling to me from the beginning. Like I remember very early on, you know, just realizing that even her her dr- style of dress was so different from mine because at the time I was working, you know, in a in a job where I was wearing a lot of tweed blazers and you know had a certain <laughs> look going on, um, and she was wearing just such rich jewel tone colors and had a much more feminine, got kind of. Um, almost goddess earthy like presence. And so immediately, even though I was going to still work in an environment where, you know, I wasn't probably going to show up wearing like a cape, (laughs) (laughs) I could just like think about, okay, well, what, what colors would she choose? And, you know, making some of those small changes to my appearance and then looking around my home and realizing like, wow, I, most of the things in my home I chose because I didn't think I had another choice or it was the most convenient option and things in here don't really feel like they express me. And I could identify a couple things in my house that I had always loved since I got them where it's like, that's the kind of thing she would have. And then I started incorporating more and more like that. So from the beginning, some of those more, you know, everyday things were pretty easy to incorporate. Um, and then, then I also started like when a more major decision would come up, I would I would ask myself, well, you know what her life looks like. So which choice here is moving you in that direction? And I still find that very helpful as a question. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that will really help me if I can start to create that as a as a habit to asking her because who I saw is very, very you know, laid back and just relaxed and not uptight and very go with the flow. And her clothing was very flowy. And I already wear very, you know, florally clothing, but she had that as well. But it was just like very loose and very bohemian. And that was her attitude as well, which Mm. I've always been drawn to people like that. You know, Gabby Bernstein, I've always really loved her style and, and how she she communicate things. And I have you know, always been in my life 
for us, you know, you know, as much as I can remember, very talk fast and make things happen and like get stressed about marketing stuff and like my business. It's like a huge headache when I try to get something made perfect and I'm just like, ah, and always being attracted to people who are very laid back and just do what they love and make a difference in the world because they love doing that has always been very attractive to me. And I love that I saw that in me in the future. And it's like, that's who I want to be. And knowing that and knowing that deep down, that's truly what I want and how I see myself living my life in the future. That gives me a lot of confidence just to, to take things, situations, um, step by step and knowing they're not a big deal. I can relax. It's okay. I'll still be here on this earth living and breathing. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. And our, yeah, exactly as you're saying, our inner mentors, it's not something outside of us. It's really, this is in us. That's why you're able to access that vision, right? That, that woman you saw is in you already. And a, a very, the deeper part of you wants to grow into her and is longing to grow into her. And that's the other thing I, I so love about our inner mentors is it's like, the, the, all the instructions and the blueprint to become that woman is already in us. It really is. If we could just let go of some of our ego's desires to never be afraid and to always be popular and, you know, all those things that the ego worries about, if we could let those go, who we would naturally become is, is our inner mentors. I love the image that, um, Joseph Campbell talks about, you know, of, um, the acorn has all the information it needs to become the oak. And the oak looks so different than the acorn does. And the acorn needs some of the right nutrients and the right context to be able to grow. But it doesn't need anyone to tell it how to be an oak. And it doesn't need anyone to paint <laughs> a picture of an oak. It already has that destiny encoded mm. in it. And that's how I think of our inner mentors. It's like that it's a path that is there for us to walk right directly to becoming her if we choose to. I love that metaphor. And it's, I, I think another reason why I love the the inner mentor is because I have been that person. I don't know. I think you wrote about this, how people are always looking for like a mentor, like give me a mentor, anyone, just someone who's been here, done that. <laughs> give me one. <laughs> what and, store do I get one at on sale right now today? Right? Like, yeah. Can I mail order one? Like that's, <laughs> that is me and I've always been looking for the next person to give me advice and give me input and about three months ago I had this huge aha moment where I realized that lots of my mentors have pulled me away from my true self Mm. many of my mentors have told me that that idea won't work that sucks like I've had even someone tell me that I can't be a coach and a podcaster it doesn't work like that you can't spend your days interviewing people and then have people like trust you and your input and your insight because you're not the authority figure. And I'm like, oh, bummer, because that's exactly what I want to do is like help women and men and coach people, but also interview other people. So having someone tell me straight up, someone I trusted and loved and respected, that doesn't work. You cannot do that was really heartbreaking for me. I still went after it, but many times I have had mentors tell me things you can't do that, that I I stopped pursuing that because I believed them. And I was talking to another person who I, you know, that that book I mentioned earlier, The Purpose Principles. So the author is 
Jake Ducey. And I went to his home a few months ago for a retreat and it was great. And we had a coaching session and I told him how I had this struggle with mentors and how like he would say, you know, do what's true to you. What do you want to do? And I'd be like, well, blah, blah, blah said, you know, and then he, I don't cuss on my podcast, but he was basically like, F your mentors, F them, (laughs) F them forever. Like stop going to them. And since that really awesome conversation, I have been very aware of when I ask people things, you know, and I I think even since then, a few months ago, I haven't really asked for any advice because certain advice is really good at times when you're trying to get started. But at a certain point, you know what you want to do and you know that it's possible to make something happen if you really truly feel like that's your calling, which I feel like in a lot of places in my life, I have those callings and I I know and I don't need someone else's validation to tell me. Right. Yes. I, I'm so glad you brought up this topic. And I'm just like, as you're talking, I just get so fired up because I think there's so much just garbage floating around about the idea of mentorship and, and what we're supposed to get out of it. Um, so I, there's a few things I want to comment on about, about what you shared. One is that, you know, you're not alone in seeking out all these mentors and that's something that's really been fed to young people and, but also women in particular that, you know, I joke that like every time I go to a conference or something about women's leadership, when the conversation gets really depressing and nobody can figure out, you know, how we're going to get out of these, like there's declining numbers, there's bias, there's harassment, all these really real problems. You know, when things are like looking kind of grim in the conversation, someone will always say, well, women just need to go find more mentors and women need to mentor other women as if that's going to be the solution to everything. So this is something we've really been told and we've kind of adopted this idea, which of course, you know, our inner critics and the fear part of us loves this idea because it means somebody else has the answer for me. It means before I do anything scary, I can have like three people that I think are great tell me it's going to be okay and it's a good idea. So we grab onto that idea and and hold on to it. Um, but But there's a lot of problems with it, especially for women. One is that generally what what women are doing now are not things that many generations of women have done before or the way that they're looking at their fields or the way they're looking at the world, you know, they're seeing it through a completely different lens than the status quo. Because the status quo in almost every field was shaped by men. So to tell a woman, go find the mentor who's going to help you figure this out kind of doesn't make sense given that in most cases she is going to be pioneering her own path. It also doesn't make sense because the whole idea of a mentorship relationship is based on a father-son model. And a lot of people don't know this. I didn't know this until I started getting really interested in the whole concept of mentorship. And I went and read about the history of the word and the history of the idea. The original, very first time the word mentor was ever used, mentor is a character in the Odyssey. Remember way back Homer's Odyssey. 
And he's a character that comes in as a substitute father figure to take care of Odysseus's son when Odysseus goes away on his journey. And then for all of the history of literature, that's what a mentor means. It's a father-son kind of relationship with an alternative father figure. And then, you know, in historical terms, about two minutes ago, we decided that women should have that mentoring relationship with other women too. But I don't think it works for us because we don't relate to each other in that more hierarchical father-son, clear leader, clear follower um, way. We have a much more kind of mutual way of being in relationship with each other um, where nobody is pretending to be the expert or authority. And we both know we can learn not only from sharing what we each know, but really we're going to learn and grow more from our connection and how we support each other, not one person telling the other one to what to do. Mm-hmm. So so much to say about that. And and one more thing I'll add, because um, it's so relevant to what you said, is that, you know, in the book, I also talk about how do we unhook from other people's feedback. And one of the big principles that I teach that helps with that is that we can always see feedback, not as telling us about ourselves, but as telling us about the person giving the feedback. And so in the case of that conversation with the mentor, I would want to look at, well, what does that tell us about her or his experience, their way of seeing the world, maybe their agenda for you, um, and, and look at it solely as information about that, not the truth about what possibilities are there for you. And that's another thing that's helped me so much is remembering that that criticism is is telling me information about them. Because I've heard things like that before, like it's not about you, it's about them, but being able to really read that on paper and think, okay, it's really giving me information about them. They've had something happen in their life where they've grown up to to not appreciate that quality or have a bad taste in their mouth with that. And when I get criticism or any kind of rejection now on things that I write, I remember, okay, that tells me that they don't like anything that has that word in it or anything that has talks about this topic or subject or they just don't have those experiences and it's so much easier to be able to not uh yeah I guess hook on to that information and completely just turn around my thoughts and change my ideas it just tells me what they like exactly and and it doesn't mean that we ignore criticism or that we dismiss it or don't take it seriously it's just we're taking it seriously for a different reason so you know if your podcast listeners if you know a hundred of them were to write to you and say hey that interview you did so with so and so you know it just it rubbed me the wrong way i didn't feel it was consistent with what our community is all about you know they had a bunch of criticism um that might still be really important to listen to. But if you look at it as information about you, we're probably going to start going in the downward spiral. Like I made a bad decision about what guests to have. Um, I, you know, didn't, I, I don't understand my audience. I betrayed our principles. I screwed up. All these kinds of things that are going to get you stuck from bouncing back quickly or for maybe even feeling confident with your future decisions. But if you take it seriously as information about them, 
then we started to get curious, like, oh, what is it about my community that, you know, this interview struck so many of them in this way? What can that help me? Um, how can I, how can I be of more service to them or more in touch with them because of what I'm learning right now? So it's, it's just strategic information that is often information about people we do want to reach or work with or engage with or, you know, be in close relationship with. And, and we want to take it seriously, but because it helps us understand them, not because it's a verdict about us. Yes. And no matter what area of life you're in or what career you have or what your passion is, that will come in handy. And I'm thinking, especially as being an entrepreneur, you're constantly growing, you're constantly evolving. And so being able to take that criticism and really be able to look at it and get curious about it and wonder about it and see how it resonates with you. If you were to change something, that's super important. So I have one more question before we go to our quick fire round that I've got to ask you about because I love it so much. But can you give us some insight on to the two different types of fear? Oh, yes, yes. So this is um, a a teaching that I came across in a beautiful book by Alan Liu. The book is called uh, Sit Still and Get Going. And Alan Liu was a rabbi and he is writing about how in the Old Testament, there are two different Hebrew words that are used for fear, two different terms. And one of the words is pachad. And the definition of pachad is it's the fear we have of things we imagine or the fear of projected things, like when we project a possible outcome. So that, you know, oh my God, this is going to go horribly. Um, The plane is going to crash. There's a monster under the bed, right? The fear of imagined things or projected things. And that's our kind of irrational, overreactive, lizard brain fear. The other word that's used for fear in the Old Testament is yirah. And Uriah is used in three different kinds of instances. There's these three sort of connecting scenarios where this term is is used. One is when uh, one of the figures in the in the Bible story is suddenly inhabiting a larger space than they're used to. This is the word that we use to describe how they're feeling. Uriah. The second is if they suddenly come into possession of more energy than they normally have. And the third is when they're in the presence of the divine or the sacred. So when I read that, I felt like I really understood something new about myself and about the women that I have been in conversation with about their playing big. Because playing big involves all those things. We're inhabiting a larger space, you know, whether that's a literal space, stepping onto a stage or a a virtual space of a bigger audience. We're inhabiting a larger space than we're used to. We often are infused with more energy because we're doing something we feel called to do or we're passionate about. And we're certainly in touch with the sacred in ourselves when we're pursuing those passions or when we're sharing our voice and telling our truths. I would say that's a, a connection with the most sacred parts of ourselves. And the, the beautiful thing about this idea is that when we know the two different kinds of fear, we can react to them really differently. Because with Yura, that's actually a wonderful indicator that you're on the right track. And there's nothing to do with that kind of fear except breathe into it and welcome it and be present to it. 
With pahad, on the other hand, with that overreactive fear of future things, what could happen, a lot of times we really do need to manage it or shift out of it so that it doesn't run the show. Yeah, and so it doesn't hold you back from possible opportunities. So like, for example, when I think about speaking, just go back to the public speaking thing. Yeah, I feel like I was trying to use those two words and figure out what my process is. I feel like I start with, you know, or however you say it, Uh where I'm just like, oh my gosh, I know I'm going to puke. My hands are going to shake. My voice is going to be shaky. But I, it's also a really, really strong combination of with your raw, where I'm just like, yes, I want it so bad. I want to do it so bad. Like that is what playing bigger will look like for me. Is that often how it is? Are they sometimes yeah. a combination? They're often intertwined or a lot of times people will feel pahad when they're thinking about doing something, but the actual experience of doing it will be mostly your, right? So in the anticipating it of the, you know, it's, this could go wrong, that could go wrong. But in the moment where you're up on the stage and you're saying those words and you're connecting with your audience, you're going to feel your, and your is also a little bit uncomfortable. You know, it's not all, it's not, it's, It's not a um, pure positive feeling because it is a really heightened state um, that's a combination of fear and awe and this expansion beyond our our normal everyday selves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love it so much. Thank you for including that in that book because that's just so beautiful and I love to remember that. Um, So before we go to the quick fire round, where can everyone find you and keep up with all this awesome work you're doing? Yeah, I'm at taramore.com, T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R. I would love to see everybody over there. And a first great thing to get started with is you'll see a lot of places you can get my 10 Rules for Brilliant Women free workbook. Um, which is super fun. And I, as you know, from my conversation today, I love to blog. So there's lots of great free articles and um, other resources there too. Yes. And also everyone listening, you've got to get this book and I'm sure you can get the book off of her website. I will have a link to her website as well as link to the book um, on the show notes for this at maddiemoon.com slash mbm85. And in the book, you can go through the, the, visual, the visualization and you can read more about the two types of fear and so much more that we didn't even get to touch on. Yes. And the book is available everywhere. If you Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever, wherever you like to get your books and the paperback just came out. So it's also easier to get around with now too. Yeah. When did your first one come out? When did the hardback come out? The first one came out in October of 2014. And then the paperback came out right at the start of the year. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I'm super glad that it just came out and I got to get a copy. Thank you. Yeah. So quick fire round time. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. Number one, what does body freedom mean to you? What a great question. Um, It means living my life from the inside out instead of trying to watch myself from the outside in. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I love that. What is a must-read book? A great must. Oh, well, I just finished Gloria Steinem's book, Life on the Road, which is fabulous. Recommend to everybody. 
Okay, awesome. I'm writing that down. Um, if you could interview anybody in the world, who would it be? Oh, so many great candidate people. Um, probably Oprah. Oh, that's good. That's a real good one. What is a future dream that you're currently working towards? Hmm. Um, writing, writing my next book, discovering the topic for my next book. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, what's the best movie you've watched in the past month? Oh God, I have a toddler. I don't watch movies. <laughs> what's the best kids I, movie? I watch TV like once every six weeks. Wow, that's impressive. Okay. I mean, it's, it shouldn't be. It's just because I don't have time. I wish my if my child was a better sleeper, I would watch a lot more. What about music? What is some uh, music that you love? I love um, I love Satnam Kar. For anyone who doesn't know about Satnam Kar, oh, amazing um, spiritual music. Um, yeah, that's a big favorite for me right now. What is your favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day? Just sitting on the couch and um, my husband and I will often do a conversation where one of us shares everything that's going on for us, like in a big, long monologue, and the other one only listens and reflects back what they're hearing. So like instead of getting someone else's opinions, you know, or whatever, which we love that too, but we love to just do that. Like, let me unfold everything that's up for me and just be heard. We do that. And then we kind of move on with our evening and it's really lovely. Oh, do y'all do that every night? No, not every night, but pretty regularly. Really cool. What's a country you have visited and loved or a country that you want to visit? I love Denmark and Copenhagen. currently what's your favorite meal Mm. um you know what I had this morning so I'm I'm visiting I'm out of town I live in San Francisco I'm in New York right now and I walked into this cafe and they had so many beautiful vegetable salads which is great I'm a vegetable junkie and I had scrambled eggs with an eggplant tagine on the side and it was an amazing breakfast Sounds so good. <laughs> I must say, it was quite amazing. <laughs> All right, last question. If you could challenge everyone listening to this podcast to let go of something, what would it be? Hmm. Um, fear of being the first one to say something. Oh, that's a real good one. I like that a lot. I like these quick fires. Can I use this for therapeutic purposes? Absolutely. (laughs) I'll call you back tomorrow. Absolutely. I love quick fire questions. They're just really fun. And they're, yeah, they bring out interesting things. Like I I don't think I've ever really gotten in touch with any of those things before. Oh, super cool. Yeah. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming on and just sharing all of your incredible knowledge with everyone. I'm really excited for everyone to pick up this book and check out this podcast. So thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone who was listening today. It really 
I'm, I feel the virtual circle of everyone who is listening and um, look forward to staying in touch. Awesome. All right, everyone, make sure that you head on over to the website. Go to maddiemoon.com slash mbm85 and you can check out her book, her website, all the great links there. And if you haven't downloaded 10 Proven Steps for Ending Any Diet Obsession, you can get my free book there on the site. And I'll see you guys next week. 